everyone, and welcome to 17 Minutes of Science, the Quarantine Chronicles. This is our third episode, and we're having a great time connecting with you all in this way. My name is Sarah Cheeseman. I'm a technical solutions scientist at InVivo Biosystems, formerly known as NEMA Metrics, which you'll be figuring out if you're on the Facebook page. My background is in developmental biology and genetics, and I have used zebrafish and Drosophila systems, so I'm a big model systems fan, which you've heard me say before. We're glad that you're joining us from home or wherever you're tuning in, six feet away from everybody else. And so despite being apart, we love meeting here to chat about interesting science in a speed dating format. And we're lucky today to have a wonderful guest, Aaron Putsky, joining us from Whitworth University in Spokane, Washington, our neighbors to the north. So today's topic is the more models, the merrier. Zebrafish and sea elegans working together. I don't know if Aaron knew that, but we came up with a catchy title. <laughs> I love it. Uh, I'm gonna turn it over to uh, let Aaron introduce himself in one moment, but please, as, as always, feel free to drop us questions over Facebook or just let us know that you are out there. So Aaron, give us a quick 30 second on you. Yeah, so I'm a professor of biology and uh, my background is developmental biology as well. So I was a graduate student in Joel Rothman's lab at UC Santa Barbara, and that's where I learned about C. elegans. And then I was a postdoctoral fellow uh, with Cecilia Moens at the Hutch in Seattle and zebrafish. Um, but I also tagged on the end of my postdoc um, a couple of years in a cancer biology lab because I have a real huge interest in bridging developmental biology and cancer biology. So that's kind of where I've existed since um, I've been in a, a tenure track position at, I'm at a small liberal arts college. So I work with primarily undergraduates in research. So my research program, um, although I have a great time and we do a lot of good stuff, um, moves a little slower because I don't have graduate students and postdocs working on stuff 24 seven, but, uh, but we have a great time. That's awesome. You're the first person we've, we've connected with who's in that kind of setting, which is, mm of course, contributing to all kinds of wonderful research and enriching student experiences in a way that's measurable. Can you tell us, uh, you mentioned that you did one, one aspect of your education in one model and, and then the other. Um, did you envision blending those as you looked for a faculty position? I did, and I have to admit, I did it especially because I knew I wanted to work in an um, undergraduate environment. And so both of those, it was so clear to me that both of those were so um, great to work with as tools from a teaching perspective, um, from so many levels, you know, uh, diploid genetics, right? Great for teaching and also about as easy as you can get for working things out on paper. Um, but also, you know, looking at embryos, I mean, they're transparent, great to see under a microscope. You can watch development as it happens. So it's just really interesting and fascinating. And the tools that we have for manipulating them from a molecular perspective uh, have been so well worked out and people continue to push the envelope with great tools, um, you know, whether it's knockouts or whether it's, you know, fluorescently tagged genes, you know, all this kind of stuff. It just makes it better and better as you move forward. And now that we have great tools, even moving beyond confocal mi microscopy that, um, uh, they're just really great systems in so many different ways, you know. Yeah, it seems to me like it used to be the more the exception that the investigators they just work on one system because it took so mm -hmm. much to master one system. But 
but it seems like increasingly people are just looking to the tool that lets them answer the question in the way they need to do it. And so we hear from people increasingly blending you know, mammalian systems along with zebrafish or right. perhaps, yeah, the other way going from zebra right. um, to an invertebrate system, well, perhaps with flies as well. So it's, to me, it's just fascinating. And as you say, the embryos, it's all, it's all just beautiful to look at, especially mm. you can label parts of the developing system with, with the glowing markers for microscopy. That's sure to wow undergraduates any day of the week. <laughs> oh yeah. I mean, it's, well, I mean, I distinctly remember when I was rotating as a graduate student, the first time, you know, I watched cells or kind of stared at cells dividing in a four cell embryo and C. elegans, uh, it was like, it was like a moth drawn to a flame or something. I just couldn't stop watching. And it was like, I have to do this. This is what I have to do. And as you get more into it and see the tools and as fluorescence developed more and more over time, uh, it's just, I mean, it just got more and more fascinating. And yeah, it's, I think students, when they see that kind of stuff for the first time, they just can't believe what we can actually do with model organisms. You know, it's not just staring at a, an adult fish or something like that. It's, it's looking at these things under microscopes at high magnification with fluorescence and they're just blown away. It's super cool. I agree. All these years later, I feel exactly the same way. It's still absolutely magical just to mm -hmm. watch it happen in real time. How, in, in your mind, are the models complementary for studying the questions that you're interested in? You mentioned cancer biology. I believe you're interested in vascular biology. Can you speak to that? Yeah. I mean, I, a, a big thing that I do is uh, I like building the bridge between the invertebrate and vertebrate worlds. Um, something that's interesting from a cancer perspective, you know, worms don't really get cancer. They don't really live long enough to get cancer. But what's really interesting, and again, I remember this from grad school when I first heard about um, Paul Sternberg and his lab at uh, Caltech, he was the first one to really show cellular function for RAS, you know, the oncogene. They had, they had seen it, or they knew it was involved in cancer biology, but nobody had really worked out the cellular mechanics. And using worms and genetics, uh, his lab basically worked that out. And when I read about that in grad school, I thought, wow, this is amazing. You can take a worm and you can learn how much there are similarities in cellular pathways between worms and humans and then try and translate that, right? It's not a direct translation and you're not necessarily going to cure cancer using worms, but there's so much information that you can take and move it to another system. And so that's part of what I like is to uh, learn in worms and zebrafish, look at the similarities, look at the differences, and then we try and build stories that maybe somebody else in a mammalian system um, or human cells can say, hey, oh, I wonder if that works the same way. So there are a lot of levels of translation that are, are super fascinating, but I like the, the two model approach because uh, they're never the same. And that's part of what keeps it interesting to me. I, I love thinking about cancer biology, but still a big part of me is basic science and just how do cells function? How do they talk to each other? And what are the differences in organisms as you move through evolution? For sure. And that makes me think, based on what you described about weaving together those stories, do you collaborate uh, with folks who use mammalian systems as well, just in your body of work? So um, I did in the past. Um, I don't have any currently right now, but um, I collaborated with somebody uh, that was at a, a cancer institute in Grand Rapids, and um, we did some really interesting work with some, 
it's it's kind of again the technology has moved forward at that time we used microarray whereas now we're using rna seq technology um, but that was really cool because it gave us a platform to in that case looking at um, knocking down this kinase and zebrafish embryos and he already had huge microarray um, sets that we could use from various cancer lines. And so we were trying to do those comparisons and again, see, because this kinase was not characterized, we were trying to see if cellular pathways, if there's a lot of homology or not between how they were functioning in tumor biology versus just embryology. Hmm, interesting. And then of course, these other model systems lend themselves to throughput in a way mm -hmm. that's challenging when you're working with uh, rodent models. Oh yeah, right. I mean. Yeah, statistics in worms and zebrafish embryos are way different than statistics in mice because we need ends of hundreds, right? <laughs> Whereas in mice, it's an N of eight or something like that, which, you know, we all try and do what's reasonable. But, you know, I think what's something that's, that's really exciting to me is also because of the size that we're working with, um, I'm working with somebody in our engineering department here. Yeah, he works with 3D printing and we're actually using a, um, an open source model for a microfluidics system. And so we're trying to develop uh, specifically for my needs, a microfluidic system for sorting both worms and zebrafish embryos. So they're two different microfluidic templates. But again, it's that kind of access to technology, but it's really the model systems are so amenable to that kind of stuff um, that you can build tools out there that are pretty amazing for really not that expensive anymore. That's a cool story. And have you, have you worked with your uh, zebrafish to make them more humanized in your approaches? That, yeah, so we're actually sort of on the cusp of doing that. Um, I did that a little bit in worms, if I'm interpreting your question right. Um, a while back is we were looking at um, the functional homology, if you will. And so we had knocked out this kinase and part of what I wanted to do was say, uh, it looks similar to the human kinase. If we express the human kinase in the worm knockout, will it rescue? Mm -hmm. And um, remarkably it did, not a full rescue, but uh, so in worm embryos, it rescued, there's a huge enclosure defect and it rescued the enclosure. They didn't go on to survive um, very long, but they enclosed. And that just kind of shocked me that there was enough homology between the two uh, that it allowed for that kind of rescue to happen. So again, that's another milestone for me that was like, holy cow, this is amazing. I was gonna say those experiments, when they work, they're yeah. so astonishing when you have that degree of separation across the phylogeny of those animals. And, and oh. when they don't work, you know, what, that doesn't mean that they're not um, right. molecules, but when they right. do this extraordinary, that's very cool. And yeah. let's turn now uh, to CRISPR because that's always mm -hmm. on everyone's mind these days. What yeah. of your model? Um, it sounds like you might have been using that technique in, in both systems. Is that true? Yes. Um, what we've really uh, done because of the technology involved is we've focused now on um, making either uh, fluorescent tags or flag tags um, or kind of um, trying to use a Cree-lock system. So uh, CRISPR is set up to make all of those significantly more efficient um, than they've been in the past. And so 
we have a knockout in worms. And so now we're trying to manipulate worms in a different level where we can get uh, conditional expression or tissue specific expression, that sort of thing. We had an antibody, um, but again, I'm, I'm at a smaller college. And so we're trying to you know, always think about budgets, even if we have grants. And so what I thought was let's make a flag tag and express that because anti-flag antibodies are cheap compared to a specific antibody. So you know, we're in those process of getting those well. Um, what we're trying to do in zebrafish is because I know that the knockout is lethal, you know, and trying to maintain uh, a heterozygous state in zebrafish is, is more involved than in worms. Worms are just pretty easy. And so what we're trying to do is create a conditional knockout where we can induce, you know, a Cre-lock system to, to knock it out um, conditionally, instead of having to worry about constantly monitoring whether we are maintaining HETs and all that sort of thing. So I'm always trying to think a few steps ahead of when I have undergraduates who are dedicated, but they're also taking classes full time. I have to think about uh, what time they have and what distractions are taking them away from the lab and how, how, how involved do I need to be. So we try and build tools that are amenable to all of us. Um, knowing that occasionally we may need a little grace period in there. <laughs> Isn't that a true statement? Especially, <laughs> especially right now. Um, and what, what have some common challenges been that you've experienced using CRISPR? I know the community talks about the challenges all the time. Just curious what your thoughts are on that from your experience. Yeah, um, only speaking for myself here. Uh, it's way easier on paper than it is in practice. I mean, it's just, you know, what, 10 ish years ago, kind of whenever the, it, everybody started getting really excited about it. And then the early 2010s, I guess, when it actually started to happen. Um, we first tried it five ish years ago and just kind of ordering the parts. And it kind of worked, but we found it was much more challenging to kind of validate the system and where it was cutting and that sort of thing again, with the caveat that we're not working on it 24 seven. So I don't necessarily have, you know, myself and some others that are experts kind of focusing on it all the time. And so when you're, when you're working with undergraduates, um, you have to take that into account. And so when it's mostly on my shoulders and also knowing that I have other stuff to do and I can't just spend all day in the lab like I'd like to, um, we just found it more challenging. We hit more snags than we thought and troubleshooting those snags, it just, uh, it extended our timeline quite a bit. So even though we got some positive hits in the end, I really had to start weighing sort of what is my time worth versus just getting the tool so that we can use it because that was our goal. We're not a CRISPR lab per se. We're just trying to build a tool that we can use to move our experiments forward down the road. Right, that makes a lot of sense. I think a lot of people view it that way, of course, is that just just give me give me that reagent and then I can move forward with the questions that are really interesting to me. But there's so much character coming out all the time about improvements, but yeah. Yeah, it's it's a big lift to incorporate those things. Yeah. As we head down the stretch here on our last minute and a bit, um, I'd like to just say, um, so we're in we're in quarantine. Mm -hmm. And so what are things go how is it at your university and how are you all coping and what's going on with that? Yeah, I mean, it's a challenge for everybody. So we 
we moved into spring break a week early. So everybody kind of got two weeks of spring break. And during that time, all of us faculty were moving our courses online. And so figuring out the best ways to interact with our students and try and complete out the semester. So we're done in mid-May. And so we don't have a whole lot left, but we still had to figure it out. Um, labs in my situation are just sort of gone. There's no way for me to create a virtual lab at this point, at least in a meaningful way. Um, so I had to adapt for those. And then from a research perspective, uh, we had to really figure out how can we keep things going? You know, worms you can freeze down, zebrafish, not so much. And so uh, we have to figure out how do we keep our vivarium going and how do we, can we keep experiments moving slowly without jeopardizing anyone's safety, uh, that sort of thing. So we're really trying to maintain that balance and mostly just hitting pause and keeping things where they are without losing too much ground before we can all start up again. Sounds like the refrain we're hearing all over the world. <laughs> right. The comfort in knowing that we're all in that same situation um, yeah. is, is, is resonating with everybody. Hey, we did it. Time is up. That Perfect. was succinct. I appreciate that last answer. It's nice to hear where, where people are coming from. Yeah. Well, thank you so much, Aaron, for taking the time today. I hope that you and your family remain well and, and happy in your isolation mode and that spring comes soon. <laughs> Thank you. I had a lot of fun. I appreciate the invitation. All right. Well, we'll look forward to seeing everybody next time on 17 Minutes of Science. Stay tuned for who's coming next. Take care, everybody.